created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. And the earth was void and without form. And the word was with God. And the darkness covered the face of the deep. And the word was God. Then God said, let there be light. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There you go. <clears throat> that was from the TV show The Chosen. And uh, that's the, uh, the end of the first episode in season two, which depicts... The Apostle John, uh, f- f- figuring out how he wants to start his gospel. And I just love the powerful image of how the truth of Jesus and his ability to choose these words flows from his relationship and memories of him. And if you haven't watched The Chosen yet, shame on you. you haven't been listening to me enough. It's never been easier. Season one of The Chosen is now on Netflix. So if you don't want to go and download a new app and you're just looking for a way to check out the show, go on Netflix and look up The Chosen it's there. And Karen and I are very excited because season three is coming out in just a, a couple weeks' time. So we're pumped about that. What makes a show like that so powerful? Well, I think it does give us this ability to, to understand to a greater extent just how close someone like John was to Jesus. And so as we look at his gospel, and we're going to look at the prologue of John Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, over the course of the Advent season. And I I don't want this to to ever kind of merely become words on a page or theological ideas or nice, comfortable three-point sermons from a pastor. These are not only deep theological truths, but they come from someone who walked and talked with Jesus, had this personal knowledge of him. And yes, John 1 does provide us with a less common Christmas story. I did not follow through with my, with my threat of doing an Advent series on the pregnant woman and the, and the dragon. Um, that would be the most atypical Christmas story. And John is, is maybe a close second because it really isn't a story as such. It's not a narrative. It, it, it tells us something different about Jesus, but something that is quite profound. And as my hope is that we dig deeper into it together, we will find that there are some profound lessons to be learned from John's account of what that first Christmas Eve meant for us. And before we go further, I would just invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, you sent your Son, Jesus, to be with us. And that's the Christmas season. That's the story. That's the reason why we are gathered together today. That's why we are singing some of these specific songs. And God, there are so many different things that clamor for our attention during this time of the year. But I pray that 
during this Christmas season, I pray particularly for the next 30, 35 minutes that our focus would be on you. And the focus would be on your word. And the focus would be on what that word means to us as we go about living our lives during this Christmas season and beyond. So God, that is our hope. That is our, that is our posture as we approach your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, so John's gospel was written by the Apostle John. At least that's my belief. I would even go so far as to say that, that we went through, went through Revelation, and I believe the Apostle John wrote that book as well. And so there is some similar authorship going on here in the gospel of John. And, and, and John writes his gospel differently because there are different questions. The date of this gospel is the latest of all four. The earlier Gospels were, were written maybe starting around A.D. 60 and in, a, in the decades following. But the Gospel of John was written around A.D. 90. So you can imagine at this time, it, John is well advanced in years. And he very well may be the last person on earth who walked and talked with Jesus. If not one of the last people that walked and talked with Jesus in that manner. He's the last living apostle. And he's writing to a church that's not made up of first-generation Christians anymore. Now there are second, maybe even third-generation Christians. The church is not just recent converts. Now there are children that have been born and raised in the church. And with that, now that the church has had some mileage on it, there's some other ideas that start to seep into the teaching of the church, largely from the world around it. And these teachings in John's mind often threaten some of what he knows to be true about Jesus. I mean, he knows because, again, he walked and talked with the Lord. And so he wrote this gospel so that we may understand and believe about Jesus rightly. So if you want to know about John's writings, what does, why would he write this gospel? Why would he write these letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Why would he even write Revelation? The quick summary statement I would give you is that John wanted you to believe about Jesus rightly. He even gives us his thesis statement at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is so driven so that we may believe about Jesus rightly, not just so that we have proper theology, but that we may truly have life in his name. So as we learn these things about Jesus, we need to learn that, 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 that they matter just more than a concept, but as a way to, to follow and to live life. And the first lesson right at the outset, that John wants us to know rightly about Jesus is that he is divine. And he uses this idea of the word to describe Jesus. And the word is divine. We've heard this uh, um, quoted maybe a few times already. I'll read it one more time. It's only three verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning was the Word. And John is making this argument that the Word, being Jesus, is divine. And he makes this argument in a few different ways. And first he says that the Word is eternal. Or the way that he describes it is that he, the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning. He was in the beginning. And, and truly, 
the statement for that is we see that, that now the, the word later is going to be involved in all this creative activity, all of creation. Really, we can understand this as saying that, that the word was there before the beginning, before the universe had a beginning, before creation came to be, the word was there. Because the word exists outside of creation, exists outside of time. The word is eternal. And this is, in part, what Jesus means in Revelation when he declared himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Really, before the beginning and past the end, Jesus is eternal. He has always been. He is right now, and he always will be. And, of course, a claim to being eternal would be a claim to being divine. The word is divine, not just in his eternality, but also the fact that this word had a unique relationship with God. The way that John puts it for us, that the word was, was with God in the beginning. The word was with God. And this reveals a very close and unique interpersonal relationship. I mean, hands up here, if anyone else can claim to be with God before the, the dawn of creation. Anyone else? Right. This, this is not a claim that any other human being could make. And yet this word was there, not just present, but present with God in close personal relationship with him. And, and as you continue to read through the Gospel of John in your own time, you will know that he goes to great lengths to highlight the unique one nature of the Father and the Son. There is a direct relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And we get so much of that information from the remainder of, God, of John's Gospel. And the foundation is laid here right at the beginning. That there was something unique. The word Jesus was with God, had this unique relationship with him. But then John takes it one step further. In case we are wondering if he's still claiming that Jesus is divine, he goes out and says it. That the word is not only with God, but the word was God. Jesus is not just the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is not only fully human. He is also fully God. He does not only enjoy this unique relationship with God, but he is God himself. He has this divine essence within him. And this is a crystal clear claim of divinity for Jesus Christ. And we certainly don't want to translate this wrong, as some other translations have done it. In fact, if you were to be a Jehovah's Witness, you would have your own unique translation of the Bible. <laughs> And you'd go to John 1, 1, it would say in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And it's just one little word, one little letter even. But man, does that ever change the way that you believe about Jesus? And, and the irony, really, the, the disappointment in that is, is that believing rightly about Jesus, the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is divine, is the whole purpose of John's book, the whole purpose of his gospel, and so that should make it very easy for us to understand this properly at the beginning. Jesus was not just a special human being. He was not a God of many who would follow or others who could be like him. He was fully God. And he is fully God today. The word is divine. Now we can see a little bit how the Gospel of John helps us understand the Trinity much better. And don't worry, we're not going to dig deeply into it. But if you were to say, hey, pastor, 
Where do we get a lot of our biblical foundation for what we believe about the Trinity? I would cite so much of the Gospel of John to you because that is where this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is most often talked about. And so even in the prologue, we see little echoes of this, that somehow Jesus is in relationship with God and he is God at the same time. Already in the first three verses, we see that the Trinity is at the forefront of John's understanding of who God and who Jesus is. Both are true. Jesus was with God in relationship and was also God in essence. Yes, Jesus the Word is truly divine. But that is not really going to be what I think makes a difference completely in how we live. It's Again, it's too much of a concept. We need to know how do we understand the Word. So the Word is with God. The Word was God, is divine. But what what does John mean when he says the Word? Well, the Word for the Word (laughs) is Greek. uh, The Greek word is logos. That's that's a word. And it's, it's not something that John used uniquely. This was a well-known term in the world around in which this gospel was written. So there was a a Greek form of philosophy called Stoicism. And if you were a Greek Stoic, you believed that the Logos was seminal reason, was prime rational thought. And this impersonal force of reason was, was the force through which all things came to be and all things were ordered. So the world which is chaotic, is governed by reason. So this creative and governing force was called the Logos. And certainly, John's audience would have been aware of that thought. And then even uh, in in a related situation, there was uh, Philo, who was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher that was a contemporary of Jesus, just before the time that John would have written this. And Philo would argue in his philosophy Um, before or or during Jesus' ministry even, that there was this logos who was an intermediary between uh, the divine and the earthly material world. This logos was an intermediary between the divine and material world. And for Philo and for other Greek philosophers who were influenced by Plato, there was this dualism that everything that was divine and spiritual was good and everything that was physical and earthly was bad. And there needed to be someone to bridge or something to bridge this gap. And for Philo, this was this logos. And so what's what's fascinating is just by using that one word, which is word, logos, John already sees and taps into some of these understandings that there is one through whom all things created. There is one in which all things are held together and governed. There is an intermediary between the divine and the world. But while all of these are fascinating subplots, John is not just borrowing on this philosophy. He is taking it one step further. Because the word, this logos, is not just reason and rational thought. It is not some impersonal force. It is not some mere bridge. It is a person. The logos, the word, is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So he's tapping into some of these Greek philosophies, but he's going so much further. And Jesus was not just a bridge. He came down to earth himself. And that changes everything. But as much as I find it fun to talk about Stoicism and Hellenistic Jewish Greek philosophy, that's not where we're going to spend most of our time. 
Because John was certainly aware of, and I believe intentionally using some of these philosophies to greater explain who Jesus was, but the majority of his gospel is steeped in the Old Testament. Time and time again, John will quote the Old Testament. He will allude to the Old Testament. He will, he will talk about all these festivals and the routine of the covenant people. And there are ways in which the Word of God from the Old Testament can help us understand the Word as Jesus revealed it to be. Commentator D.A. Carson points out that in the Old Testament, the Word of God is displayed through the activity of God's creation, of God's revelation, and God's deliverance. And I love that framework, and I want to spend some time digging deeper into how we understand Jesus as the Word in these three areas. And so firstly, we know that the Word is Creator. We understand the Word as Creator. And obviously, as we read John 1, and I loved how the chosen did it, they overlaid John chapter 1 with Genesis chapter 1 because as John is writing it, he clearly invites us to go back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So if we are to understand what that means, we need to take up John's invitation and ourselves go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read the first three verses there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And then the creation story continues from that point onward. There's a few interesting notes. If we look at John 1 and Genesis 1 together in totality, we see that there is God the Father, there is the Word, God the Son, and then Genesis 1 also talks about God and the Spirit. So if we want to know that there's echoes of the Trinity in Genesis 1 and John 1, we see that there. There's another little detail that I love, which is John is, is clearly using the framework of Genesis 1, because not only does he say in the beginning was the Word, he says the Word was the light. And God's first creative activity was to say, let there be light. And so that framework continues even beyond verse 3 as far as we've gone. But that's not the main point. The main point is the question, how did God create? How did God create everything? Before the universe was, how did everything come to be? And the answer is through the Word. Through the word of God, Genesis 1 says God spoke. He spoke his word, and then there was light. And in John 1, it says that, uh, that everything was made through the word, through Jesus. And God, in, in Genesis 1, uh, in, in, in what is very different than some of the other creation myths around the, the people of Israel, God didn't need any help. He just spoke. He didn't require help. He didn't demand any sacrifices. He didn't need anything other than his word. He spoke and the universe came into being. And as the word, Jesus was and is part of this creating activity. But I love the way that this is put in, in Psalm 33. Sorry, I'm going to go back a bit in my notes here. I'm getting carried away. Psalm 33, which drives this point home of how the Old Testament views God's word. 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The word of the Lord created. And as the word, Jesus was and is part of this creating activity. John reminds us that all things were made through him. Jesus was not merely sitting on the sidelines as this universe came to be. He was the active participant in creation. Everything came to be through 
the word through Jesus Christ. And that is not an idea that's unique to John. In fact, Paul talks about it later on in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He's talking about Jesus and says, For by Jesus Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul reinforces what John has taught us, that all things were created by or through Jesus is the word. But he goes one step further. He says not only were all things created through Jesus, they were created for Jesus. And he's the, he's the focal point. He's the center. He wasn't somehow God's knee-jerk reaction to our sin that happened after creation and after the fall. Jesus has always been at the middle of it all. What did Roger say? Jesus is amazing? Yeah, he is. And we're beginning to understand more and more just how enormous his significance is. Creation was created through him and for him. And not only that, but creation is continuing to be held together by him. Did you notice that at the very end of verse 17 in Colossians? And in him and in Christ, in the word, all things hold together. Jesus is still active in creation today. The author of Hebrews explains that that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe. And it probably says power of his word, and I probably just wrote that down wrong. Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word, even today. But you all know that already. And why do you know that? Because this is the same truth we learned In Revelation 4 and 5, where John sees the slain lamb. And where is the slain lamb standing? In the midst of the throne. That there is a throne, a seat of authority for the entire universe. And it is inhabited by the lamb, by the word, by Jesus. He has created and now he holds everything together. He is sovereign. He is in control. He will not be defeated. He has overcome. That is the Jesus that we worship. That is the Jesus that came down to our level and that we celebrate during the Advent and Christmas season. This means that God has never been disinterested in his creation, even after the fall, even after we messed it up, even after we made it bent and broken. Jesus is still involved. He is still interested. He's still on his throne and working things together for our good, both now and eternity. The Christmas story then takes on cosmic significance when we read from John 1, that Jesus, as the Word, was God speaking creation into existence and holding it together. Not just like our little slice of creation here in Manitoba, not just our little globe called Earth that circles around this one star that we call the sun and this one solar system and this one galaxy, like the universe that that God is holding together through the Word. It's way bigger than that. And I've been geeking out a little bit looking at some of these pictures that the James Webb Telescope has given us. I'm going to share a few of them with you today because it gives us a great understanding. Here's a picture, hundreds of light years away, of a star with a nebula surrounding it. And this looks like somebody wanted to make the most beautiful thing ever and they just thought this up and they created this fake picture. But this is a picture of our universe. And it's amazing. It's amazing in its scope. It's amazing in its beauty. There's another picture I can share with you called the, the cliffs of, um, Cosmic Cliffs in Carina. 
And you see all this stardust and all this starter because there's active stars being formed. They're being formed right now behind some of that interstellar debris. That this creative activity isn't even finished yet. It is ongoing in our universe. There are more stars living and dying all the time. And then the last picture I want to share is called Stephen's Quintet. And those are five different galaxies. <laughs> okay? Each one of those, we're, we're in the Milky Way galaxy, right? Each one of those is a different and unique, distinct galaxy. And the top four of them are so close together that they're interacting with each other because they are their gravitational forces working off with each other. And then that fifth one at the bottom is just photobombing. Right? So it's really Stephen's quartet and then this random galaxy is like, hey, guys. We get the picture of what's going on here. The universe, we're learning so much. And the more that we learn, the bigger the universe is, the bigger I understand Jesus to be because of John chapter 1. So let us not lose this huge cosmic significance of the Christmas story because Jesus holds all of this together through the power of his word, the word as creator. Yet we also understand through the Old Testament that the word is to be known as part of revelation. The word is connected to revelation. That's often how this is described in the prophets when they received their call. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, any of the other prophets. It's a very common way of understanding that. And we have one example in Jeremiah's call. If I can find my notes here. Jeremiah's call uh, in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What I love about some of these passages in the Old Testament is how now the word of the Lord is becoming personified in its activity. It doesn't say God spoke to me. Jeremiah says the word of the Lord came to me. And I love it because to me it gives this foreshadowing, this, this uh, illusion, this anticipation to Jesus as the completely revealed word of God. The word of the Lord came to me and that word was the revelation of God to his people. And, and so through the word of the Lord to the prophets, God revealed his nature, his character, his desires, and his promises. And if you lived during that time and you wanted to know more about God, who he was, what he was like, what he wanted for your life, it required a prophet. The word of the Lord came through the prophets. But again, that author in Hebrews reminds us now that in Jesus, the complete, fulfilled, true word of God, the Logos, that's all different. This is how the author of Hebrews begins their book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, by the way, created the world. Kind of get the sense that the author of Hebrews might have known about John's teaching about Jesus, the word. So yes, in the Old Testament, the word of God was a revelation of who God was. And that again was incomplete. It was imperfect. It had to have this intermediary. And now we see the word, Jesus Christ. And now we see God revealed in completeness, in fullness. We know him better. Do you want to know what God is like? He has revealed it all through the word in the Son, in Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to talk about this in greater length in our final Advent sermon, which will take place on that Christmas Eve service. And I hope you can all make it Christmas Eve, because that will be our Christmas service. And we'll read verse 18 of John's prologue. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he, the Word, has made him known. Jesus reveals who God is. And often you need to meet someone or see them in person before you can truly understand a little bit more about them. I find this has been the case for me in my story when I'm a big sports fan, so I'll I'll cheer for different athletes, and you watch them on TV, and it kind of just gets normal seeing them on TV. There's been a few instances in which I've seen them in person, and my knowledge of them has changed. One example was at the end of the baseball season, and the Texas Rangers actually had players taking tickets at the gates. And so you'd go to the, you'd go to the, to the gate, and the person receiving your ticket would be one of the actual players. I don't think they do this anymore. I'm surprised they did it back then. It just shows me I'm old. And one of the players we wanted to go see was John Wetland. He was their closer, so his job was to come in and make us feel really nervous before they won the game in the ninth inning. That's what he did all the time. But he was pretty good at his job. He threw really hard. I wanted to meet John Wetland. So we went in, and he took our tickets, and I could not get over how massive his legs were. Do you remember this, Dad? It's a true story, right? True story, yeah. His thighs were bigger than I was. I was probably like 13 years old. You could have put two of me in his pant leg. He has huge legs. And I was like, that's how you throw so hard. Didn't show up like that on TV, but when I saw him in person, I learned more about him. A similar thing happened. I also happened to be a basketball fan living in Dallas, and then Mark Cuban bought the Dallas Mavericks. And some of you may know Mark Cuban for being on the Shark Tank. And so he, he wanted to get energy back in. He said, if you, if you as a fan will paint yourself and yell and scream all game long, I'll give you free tickets. And I was like, that speaks to my Mennonite soul. And so I did this with my friends. We had so many of us. Um, we, had to have an, we had go Mavericks, and then we had so many, we needed one dude to be an exclamation point. Like, hooray, go Mavericks, yay. And so we did this, and we had to go really early and prove that we had no shame or inhibitions. We'd yell and, and be crazy. And we, did, and we got these free tickets, and we go in during warm-up, and we get our seats. They're pretty good seats. And then we see Mark Cuban down courtside uh, at, during warm-up time. And so we go, we love you, Mark Cuban. You know, like, thanks for free stuff. And he sees us. He's like, oh, yeah. And he waves us down. We're like, what? He's like, yeah, come on down. So we're like, all right, here we go. So then we go down courtside. We get to meet Mark Cuban. And he signs our tickets, and he says, these seats don't suck, do they? And we're like, no, no, sir, they do not. And it was awesome. We never met a billionaire before, but that's not what I, what I really want to draw out. Mark Cuban was a regular dude. But the people that were seven feet tall warming up right next to me, they were massive. Like, I know basketball players are tall. Yeah, kind of. But when you see a seven-foot player up close and personal, you know them better. All this to say that Jesus, the Word, is God's revelation to us. If you want to know God better than just a fuzzy picture on a TV, do that through Jesus. Now, we don't have the same opportunity to walk and talk with him like John did, but we can know him. He can abide with us. We can abide in him, and he will show us what God is truly and really like in a way that we have never known before. Jesus is the Word, God's revelation. And lastly, we understand the Word as deliverance. The Word of God in the Old Testament is often referred to 
uh, or God's speaking activity is referred to in these different times of deliverance. But my favorite example is Psalm 107, verse 19 and 20. Listen to these words. This is talking about God's people. Then they, the people of the Lord, cried to the Lord in their trouble. What did he do? He delivered them from their distress. And how did he do it? He sent out his word and healed them. And he delivered them from their destruction. So here we see again this personification of God's word. It didn't say God spoke. It said God sent out his word to heal them and to deliver them. In the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does this mean, church? It means that the word of God, God has done the same thing he's done before. He has sent out his word to heal us and to deliver us from our sins, from our brokenness, from all of those things that seek to draw us down into depression, into darkness, and even into death. And just as God's word is powerful enough to bring all of creation into existence, it is certainly powerful enough to deliver his people. God's word, God can speak, and things are different. Sometimes it reminds me of my household. Now, there was a, a sign I saw, one of those letterboard signs you could put up, and it said, as far, remember, as far as anyone else knows, we're a normal, happy family, <laughs> right? Well, maybe you think that of us too, but our, our, our house can be a little bit crazy. We've got three boys and now a dog, puppy. And uh, things can get a little bit crazy, and sometimes the boys will be at each other, whether they're playing and it's fun, or maybe they're bugging each other, they're losing their temper, whatever the case may be. And, then the, and the temperature is rising, and the noise is rising, and all it takes is for Karen. She doesn't have to yell, but she just says out loud, and very forcibly, stop. So maybe not the puppy, but everybody else <laughs> will stop. It just takes a word, and that chaos stops. Now, um, it doesn't work the same for me. I'm still working on it. But it's amazing how one word can still a situation. One word can take those forces and bring them to a standstill. One word can deliver us from the trouble that we are facing. Surely, Jesus, as the Word, is our deliverance. John describes this deliverance as our deliverance from sin. In his prologue, we'll explore more. He talks about now we've been given the right, we've been given the opportunity to be called children of God. That's not something we can do. That's something only Jesus can do for us. We were stuck in our sin. We were stuck facing death. And God spoke and said, enough. Enough in me is life, and you can be my son, and you can be my daughter. The word, Jesus, is our deliverance. And we were given a powerful picture of the word of God as God's deliverance in Revelation 19. I don't need to read it for you again, but that picture was of Jesus riding on a white horse. He has returned now. It's his second coming, and he is going to deliver his people from all things evil, from all things that oppose him and his will. For all time. And Jesus comes and he has a robe dipped in blood and he's riding on this horse and he has these diadems on his head, but the name he was given is the Word of God. Jesus, the Word, has delivered God's people, has delivered us, and will deliver us in and for all eternity. One day, even the greatest enemy of death, our consequence of sin, will be taken for us. Jesus saves us and he delivers us. From all of these things, he is the word. 
So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to sing another song together. And I want to remind you all, as we dig into John's gospel, what he wants us to take from it. He wants us to believe rightly about Jesus. And in order for us to do that, we need to know that Jesus is the Word. He is divine. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. And Jesus has carried out this divinity by holding creation together, revealing the character and nature of God to us, and delivering us from our sin and our brokenness. Church, this is good news. It is good news to be celebrated because the Word became flesh. Thank you.